Turn, if you would, to Acts 21. Acts 21, 1 through 16 today. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that your strength is shown in weakness. As I feel my own weakness and uh, we recognize our own weakness to uh, comprehend your word and even to apply it to our lives. And we do understand it. Uh, Lord, we want to be submitted to your holy will. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to recognize it here this morning and then to so apply it to our lives throughout this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 21, 1 through 16. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and from and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. When Paul, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Luke has been taking us along with him, with, with Paul on his missionary journeys. I've seen three missionary journeys. Uh, and this time period has covered about a quarter of a century, about 25 years of Paul's life. And some people estimate about 10,000 miles traveled. Today, 
his third missionary journey comes to a close as he comes into Jerusalem. And we see yet again the Lord Jesus working through his spirit by his apostles and through his people to bring about his perfect will, uh, despite some very painful circumstances and some, some foreboding sense of hesitancy on the part of the people. So today I'm going to begin first by simply explaining uh, this passage, and then we'll turn and hit a few points of doctrine that are relevant today and a few points of application. Uh, so we'll begin in verse verses 1 through 3. In these verses, Luke recounts this journey from Miletus. You remember Paul has called the Ephesian elders to him at Miletus and issued them an exhortation. And then in verse 1 here, it says that uh, when we had departed from them and set sail, or when we had parted from him from them, and this word parted in the Greek is a word that means to, to tear oneself away or, or to be ripped from the Ephesian elders. You get the sense of this emotional departing, which is, is in fact what we saw there, um, and that word reflects that. Now, Paul and Luke, at this point, Luke is with them. You note that it says we here throughout this section. So Luke is with the the company and they set sail south through the islands around the corner of what's today Turkey or uh, uh, Asia Minor there. And they begin heading east, landing at Patara, which is sort of near the southernmost point of Asia. Um, And from there, they find a merchant ship crossing to Phoenicia. And that's about a 400 mile sail from Phoenicia to Tyre. On their way, on the left, on the port side, I get those confused, port, starboard, I think that's the right. Uh, on the on the left side, uh, Luke recounts that he sees Cyprus in the distance there. They go past Cyprus on their way and land at Tyre, which is in Phoenicia, which is kind of a strip of, of land in the province of Syria, in the Roman district of Syria there uh, on, the, on, the, um, on the Mediterranean. Then in four, uh, four through seven, while they're at Tyre, the ship is unloading its cargo, and Paul here he makes a point of seeking out the people of God. Luke here calls them the disciples, the followers of Jesus in Tyre. There's no record in Acts or anywhere of the evangelization of Tyre. But perhaps if you remember back in chapter 11, we heard about the persecution that scattered people all over. And it says in 11, 19 and 20. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen uh, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Uh, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists and also preached the Lord Jesus. So these people were scattered, preached the gospel to the Jews. And of course, after 25 years, this would have spread throughout the community. Um, And we have this very interesting comment from Luke in in the second half of four. Um, And if you remember... Back to chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, where Paul says, um, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. I am constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So we, here we have another example of this testimony of the Holy Spirit to Paul uh, in the second half of four. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
So here we have this initial prophecy, this initial sense of foreboding about Paul's trip to Jerusalem. And it's a sort of well-meaning, probably emotional appeal out of care for Paul and probably care for the church as a whole. How will the church fail or, or, or fare if Paul's not here, if he's bound or if he's killed in Jerusalem? We don't want that to happen. And the question arises here at this point, because, of course, Paul steadfastly continues toward Jerusalem. Does Paul disobey the Holy Spirit? As Paul said himself in, in 2022, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. So does the Spirit contradict himself here? And is Paul disobeying the Spirit? And uh, we're actually going to come back to those questions. Verses 5 and 6, at the end of these seven days, they board a ship, presumably the same ship, and they start heading south toward Caesarea uh, via Ptolemais. And though uh, Paul and company have only been at Tyre for a week, Luke recounts this scene that is uh, very similar to the one that had unfolded in Miletus, that the disciples uh, accompanied Paul. And the rest of the company, they went with them and it included not only the, the, the as it did in, in Miletus, were the Ephesian elders, but the whole families, wives and children as well. And they accompany him to the beach and they kneel and pray on the beach together and bid each other farewell. This is a brief aside, but I wanted to hit on it last week, but I didn't find space for it. And I, I think it's interesting that both at Miletus and here, they, they pray together, of course, but they all kneel to pray. I mean, in Scripture, when we're reading Scripture, it's important that we distinguish between three Ps, patterns, principles, and prescriptions. So this is not a prescription that you must kneel when you pray. But it is a pattern. It's a pattern here. It's a pattern throughout Scripture that people kneel when they pray. There's some advantages to kneeling when you pray. Uh, number one, it's a humble posture before the Lord. Number two, and Calvin, Calvin brings this up, is, is that by engaging our, our bodies, we also uh, quicken our minds, which our minds are prone to be slow. At least mine is. And also, it's important when we think about worship, that worship is not something we only do in spirit, but as holistic people that we do with our body. So, in my view, it's, it's good to kneel from time to time or raise your hands if that's something you're interested in. <laughs> but the point is, we're not, we're not dualists. We're, we're body and soul, and we can worship with both body and soul. So that's just a brief aside, but I find that I find that interesting. And again, it's not a, a prescription. It's not something we have to do, but it's something to think about that I I don't spend a lot of time thinking about. And moving on to verse seven here, um, the trip from Tyre down to Ptolemais is about a just a twenty-five mile uh, hop. And they take a one-day stop there, presumably again to either load or unload cargo. And we see this another pattern, a consistent pattern developing here that's congruous with Paul's missionary calling. And his calling is not just evangelization, but also the edification of the saints. 
And this pattern is, of course, that again, once again, as they did at Tyre, they seek out the disciples. Also here, I think it's significant that Luke is demonstrating that this whole Mediterranean coast has received the gospel in light of the Great Commission, that that it is indeed continuing to go forth, even though we haven't, Luke hasn't given us this particular history, the gospel is advancing in these places. Wherever Paul goes in this area, the church is to be found. Then in 8 and 9... Uh, They arrive at Caesarea. That's another 48-mile hop down south. And we're introduced, reintroduced to someone we're familiar with. That is Philip. Some uh, about 28 years have passed since we last saw Philip in chapter 8 of Acts. And it says here that he was one of the seven and that's one of the seven men ordained to the office of kind of the proto deacon in chapter six. So this is a person distinct from the Philip uh, of the apostles and his work, Philip's work in chapter eight that kind of earns him this title, uh, the evangelist. Uh, You'll recall he was evangelizing the Samaritans and then he also evangelized uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, so he's given this this moniker, the Evangelist, by Luke. And the last time we saw Philip, we had uh, he had just baptized the eunuch, and Luke re- records then Philip's uh, interesting mode of travel to Caesarea in uh, 8:33 and or 39 through 40. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And so we hear last of Philip being at Caesarea. Now, 28 years later, he's still at Caesarea. Seems he's settled here for three decades. He's had a family. And it's interesting to think about how this man, this evangelist, would have impacted the church at Caesarea. And also that Caesarea is a port city. And as as the evangelist, you just wonder, you know, when you get to glory, who will have been heard the gospel? Because at this port city, Philip the evangelist was preaching the gospel and it was being sent out to all the nations from there. Philip's family was apparently a believing family, pious family. Um, He had four daughters. Luke mentions almost in passing here, and it'd be nice to have more information. uh, Philip's four daughters, they're unmarried, they're virgins, and they were they prophesied. They were prophetesses. And this is the second mention that we have of prophecy in this passage. And then in 10 and, uh, through 12, in verse 10, uh, we are introduced again to another kind of old friend from Acts, this person Agabus, who came down from Judea. And we, we last saw Agabus in chapter 11, 11, 27, and 28. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. 
And this, of course, came to pass. This is why Paul is going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the people at Jerusalem because of this famine that this prophet Agabus had foretold. Um, and here, Agabus kind of enacts a revelation from God in a similar way that Old Testament prophets would have enacted it. Um, we remember Hosea, that Hosea had to marry a prostitute, this unfaithful woman, Gomer. Um, he's forced to sort of act out God's revelation. Or Jeremiah, in the unusual story where he has to wear a loincloth, and then go bury the loincloth in the bank of the Euphrates, and then go back and find the rotted loincloth. He, he's acting out God's revelation. Or uh, Ezekiel is called to lay on his side for 390 days and cook his food over dung. So God has an interesting way of delivering his, his prophecies at times. And this is one of those circumstances where Agabus removes Paul's belt, probably not his clothing belt, but probably his money belt, and he binds himself with it, his hands and feet. And he says in 11, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So again, we have this this uh, acting out, this, this reference to, again, what Paul had said in 2023, that the Spirit testifies in every city of the afflictions and imprisonments that await him. Again, here, this is happening. Um, it, and just like in Tyre, the response to this testimony, to this revelation, is an emotional appeal to Paul. Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. Then in verse 13, Paul responds, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This phrase, the word breaking my heart, is literally to break in pieces or to crush. And I think the, the lexicon, Thayer's lexicon, gets the right idea here that he's saying, don't deprive me of strength and courage or, or disrupt or incapacitate me for, for enduring the trials that I have to face. You think of maybe a general on the eve of a, of a battle that's bleak, but perhaps heroic, and he's going probably to his death, and his family gathers around him and, and weeps and, and moans and says, don't go. That's not going to strengthen that man. It's going to weaken him for what he has to face. But Paul's saying, why, why are you doing this to me? We have an interesting contrast here because they're, they're weeping, they're, they're pleading with Paul in, in Ephesus. Paul himself weeps with the elders. He himself is grieved. He doesn't say to them, what are you doing? But here he does say, what, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? And so it's not as though Paul is opposed to emotion in general. It's, it's that he wants their emotion to be rightly oriented. In, in Ephesus, it was the sadness of brotherly love and not, not being able to see each other anymore. And here, it's almost a sense of, of fear and anxiety over what will happen to Paul. In verses 15 and 16, uh, they, they, they had said, actually, back in uh, verse 14, and amazingly, in their response, it's almost as if to say, Okay, we don't get it. We don't know why Paul is going here to Jerusalem, but let the will of the Lord be done. 
Let the will of the Lord be done. And then verse 15, that their declaration is backed up by their action, that the disciples join Paul and even some of the, the Caesareans come along with him. And again, we see this pattern of, of lodging, of spending time with other believers, that they uh, take up lodging with Nason, who says was an early disciple. So you wonder, was this man at Pentecost or he's been a Christian for all this time and they reconnect or connect with this man. And then Paul now here, having arrived at Jerusalem, this concludes uh, Paul's third missionary journey. I just want to take some time to draw out some lessons from this passage um, and the first one that I want to point to is, is a simple but critical reminder that we've had several times throughout Acts, but that this is history. This story is history. We should always keep in mind in Luke's purpose for writing Luke and Acts um, and that it's historical in nature as a foundation for our faith. Just by way of reminder, Luke chapter 1, speaking to Theophilus, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So this is a historical record for the sake of giving Theophilus and us a foundation for our faith. Uh, Acts, Luke and Acts is not just history, it's a spiritual book. It highlights the powerful work of the Spirit. Um, but I think unlike many of the spiritual texts in our world, the Bible, and especially Luke and Acts, is uh, spiritually historical. In this story, the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, even somewhat unusual prophetic activity, is part and parcel with sort of mundane historical details. Like, we passed Cyprus on the left, on the port side, I saw it there, right? So it gives it a concreteness to the faith that these things actually happen. They're not just maxims, they're not just proverbs or tips for living, but these are historical events. Uh, next, this, this passage touches on an important uh, doctrinal point that's kind of a, a point of debate and controversy in our own day, um, and that is the nature of prophecy itself. In two instances in this passage, and wonder, we, we kind of wonder if, if the comment about Philip's daughters might be a third, but Paul appears at first glance to uh, ignore the prophetic word given by the Holy Spirit. They keep saying, don't go to Jerusalem. And he keeps going to Jerusalem. Uh, Wayne Grudem is a popular Calvinistic systematic theologian. He supports a continuationist view of the sign gifts, which means that, that the sign gifts, such as prophecy, tongues, are continuing in our day. Um, and... The Reformed historically have been cessationists, which means that those gifts have ceased uh, with the apostolic era. And so I bring this up not to pick on uh, Brother Grudem, but he's just been one of the main popularizers of this view in in Reformed-minded circles. And part of his argument is that New Testament prophecy is different from Old Testament prophecy and that it doesn't carry the same weight and authority or accuracy. 
And so here in this passage is one example of how he thinks about, or this is, this is a quote from him about how he thinks about New Testament prophecy. He says, much more commonly the words prophet and prophecy were used of ordinary Christians who spoke not with absolute divine authority, but simply to report something that God had laid on their hearts or brought to their minds. So if this is the case, this is quite distinct from Old Testament prophecy. Uh, the penalty for an erroneous prophecy in the Old Testament was stoning. But in this view, while the impression or the thing laid on the heart was from the Spirit, the interpretation of those feelings could in fact be an error. Uh, in our passage, is probably the, the chief one he uses to support this, this idea. In this view, the prophets from Tyre and from Agabus were not necessarily proclaiming authoritative revelation, but uh, communicating the moving of the spirits in their heart, the spirit in their hearts, or something like that. Uh, and thus, this form of prophecy is is fallible, not in the transmission of the spirit to the person, but in the transmission from the person to the audience. Uh, this passage sort of suits this view of fallible, non-authoritative prophecy because, A, again, Paul seems to ignore what they're saying, perhaps. And B, Agabus at first doesn't seem to be 100% accurate in his prophecy. When we go to the story of his of Paul's interaction with the Jews, it seems like actually the Romans extract Paul from hostility of the Jews and that the Romans are the ones who bind him. So it's, it's beyond the scope of this sermon to sort of develop all the arguments about Agabus. Um, but I, I put a little article out there. It's uh, kind of a witty, punny uh, uh, title. It's Throwing Prophecy Under the Agabus <laughs> by uh, Nathan Busenitz. So I thought it was a good summary of the, if you want to know more about the debates about it. Uh, but just two points will suffice is that a careful reading of these events that follow about Paul and his interactions with the Jews um, actually does allow for a precise fulfillment of what Agabus says. And number two, Paul summarizes these events um, really in close conformity to what Agabus says here when he's speaking in Acts 18:17, And he says, after three days, he called together the local elders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had not done, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem to the hands of the Romans. So that's Paul's understanding of what happened to him. And it's very much in conformity to what Agabus said. Um, so the bottom line is I want to urge caution about this fallible and non-authoritative interpretation uh, because Luke doesn't record Agabus saying, the Lord lay, has laid on my heart what I want to share with you. What Agabus says, he quotes the Holy Spirit and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. Quote, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who wears this belt. This is very much like the Old Testament prophets who said, thus saith the Lord. So the problem here was not the clarity of the Spirit's revelation to the prophets, nor was it the clarity of the authority of the transmission of these prophecies. Uh, where, where people have, where, where they've gone wrong in the passage is in application. 
Uh, some have distinguished here between prohibition and prediction. Uh, this is a prediction by the Holy Spirit, not a prohibition to go to Jerusalem. Entire in Caesarea, the, the prophetic word of the Spirit predicted, but it didn't prohibit. So the prophecy was, was clear, it was authoritative, it was binding, it was about the suffering of Paul that would happen, but it was said nothing to the effect that he should not go. That was an interpretation of the people afterward. So, of course, Paul did not ignore the, or disobey the Spirit, and it's not as though the Spirit is contradicting himself. Um, but we should stand firmly on the conviction that when the Spirit speaks, he speaks plainly and he's to be obeyed. Finally, let's just draw out a few lessons, a few points of application here. First, we have something to learn from the pattern in this text of mutual affection and edification in God's church. We first notice this pattern again in verse 1. Luke summarizes the departure uh, from Ephesus with this word that we were ripped from the Ephesian elders. This is a strong word. This this denotes that they've, they've been connected in some way and they've been peeled apart from one another, that they loved each other to, to a great extent, that this is a very painful separation. Second, we see this theme, this pattern. Uh, we, we note Paul's commitment to seek out the disciples. Wherever he goes, he wants to find Christians. That's his first order of business. In Tyre, in Ptolemais, Caesarea, in Jerusalem. And of course here there's a cultural element that we don't have that, that you know, they, this was how he would survive. Stopping at the saints' homes was akin to finding a hotel. This is the way hospitality worked in those days. But we, I, I wonder, having lost that need almost in our society, what we've lost personally in terms of hospitality. We should also note that Paul also has a bit of a unique calling uh, to build up the church as a missionary and apostle. So, of course, he's going to stop in and check on them. But that said, just what a wonderful joy it is when we're away on vacation and we find a church and there's saints there and they're different from us. And yet we have this, this connection immediately. We know them because we believe the same things. We, we find this rich bond of common fellowship in a common cross. Sometimes even if I go away on a weekday, I kind of find myself looking around. Okay, what, what churches are here? I wonder if they have a midweek thing that we could stop in on. And I don't think I've ever acted on that impulse, but why not? Or what an encouragement it is for us. You know, we live in a place where we're kind of on the way places and people stop here. And how encouraging is, is it when they stop and, and visit us? I think of our friends, Stuart and Anna and their family who've come a couple years and they've, they've become friends. So I think what we see in this text, this pattern once again, is that a bond forms really quite fast between the families at Tyre and Paul and, and that they would accompany him to uh, the ship, that they've become friends. A second lesson that we can draw from this text, and really a point that seems to stand out as a kind of summary of the whole, is 
the response of the disciples to Paul in verse 14. Let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord was made plain. Paul was constrained to go to Jerusalem. He was going to go to Jerusalem. It was not going to be good. And yet, let the will of the Lord be done. I think we have this experience as well. We know what we're supposed to do. We may not have the Spirit speaking directly to us, but we have the revealed will of God. We have a sanctified conscience and the illumination of the Spirit. We have, have a wise counsel from brothers and sisters in Christ. And most often we know what we're supposed to do. I think uh, Calvin's life provides a helpful example here. Um, Calvin was compelled by his very persuasive friend, William Farrell, to, to pastor in Geneva. Um, and he stayed there for a couple of years and pastored in Geneva. And it was very painful for him. It was a constant friction with the uh, city council. And it was just a very painful experience to the point where they eventually banished him and William Farrell from the city. And so Calvin travels to uh, Strasbourg. And he serves as a pastor there. He's married. He has a fairly happy life in Strasbourg. Then things begin to change in Geneva. And he starts getting letters urging him to come back to Geneva. And here's just a sampling of his initial reaction to that notion. To writing to William Farrell, he says, I would submit to death a hundred times rather than to that cross on which I had to daily suffer a thousand deaths. Uh, Calvin was uh, of poor health. One of his friends, uh, Pierre Verret, suggested that Geneva might be a good place for uh, Calvin's health. And Calvin replied to Verret, it would be far better to perish than to be tormented again in that torture chamber. Therefore, my dear Veray, if you wish me well, do not mention such a proposal. But his most trusted advisors continued to urge him and his own conscience continued to plague him. And he didn't want to see Geneva falter. Geneva was still at risk of becoming a Roman Catholic city. Um, and so he began to change his mind. And finally, in a letter to Farrell, he says, as to my intended course of proceeding, this is my present feeling. Had I the choice at my own disposal, nothing would be less agreeable to me than to follow your advice. But remember, but I remember I am not my own. I offer up my heart presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, I submit my will and affections subdued and held fast to the obedience of God. So Calvin did go back to Geneva. It was still very hard for him, but also the city by the time of his death was a rich, uh, you know, international um, place of Protestant ministry that was very fruitful. Uh, it seemed that Calvin struggled, but ultimately followed Paul's example. Uh, Paul, what he said about himself in 2024, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus. 
And this is something that Paul's friends are struggling to learn as well. But they were learning. They didn't want Paul to go there. That, that was contrary to their affections and the desires of their heart. It was agonizing to them. But they ended up saying, let the will of the Lord be done. And of course, this is something that, that all of us, Paul included, are, are learning from the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the only person who ever bore his cross perfectly. Much like Paul's friends, Jesus' disciples did not understand why Jesus was always on about going to Jerusalem and the dangers that awaited him there. They didn't understand what he was talking about when he said, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be, rise, rose, be raised. Uh, Peter even rebukes him. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So it's hard. It's hard to get our, our wills to, to submit in that way. When it's agonizing, when it's death to us. Jesus himself, when his time came to face his cross, he said to his own disciples, My soul is very sorrowful for, uh, e- even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And because he drank the cup of God's wrath dry for us who believe in his name, we have received the promised spirit that we read about here in this text by whom we learn day by day to submit our wills to his perfect will, to his glory and our good in him. So may we in him die more and more to ourselves that we may live more and more unto him. Amen.